Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This week's podcast is about Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to focus particularly on unity and the gifts of the Spirit, as is mentioned. It's kind of interesting, we tend not to think of unity with Jesus so much in a broader context. We think of having his disciples from such diverse backgrounds, people that wouldn't have liked each other in the normal course of events. But it goes even beyond that. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, we read about the crowds follow Jesus. And it says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began to bring all who were sick and whatever sicknesses or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. I don't know if you're aware, but that last verse talks about people who really hated each other. I mean, people from Galilee were pretty religious people. The people from the ten towns were pagans. In fact, the Jews hated mentioning the name. They thought it would make them unclean. From Jerusalem, you had the religious groups, the Sadducees. From all over Judea, you had the kind of the academic religious So you had this potpourri of all of these people who didn't like each other. And yet, when Jesus traveled, they followed him around. Unity is such an important thing. We know that it is the evidence that we are true followers of Jesus, and it is where God commands a blessing. But unity is hard, because it's a test of character. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. See, Paul makes it clear that there are seven things we need to do to keep unity. We need, to, and, and they are listed in Ephesians 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. And those seven things are, lead a life worthy of your calling. Know that you have been called by God. Always be humble. Always be gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Binding yourselves together with peace. Have you ever thought in those times where you haven't experienced unity that maybe one of those seven things was missing? Certainly that's true in my life. And then it says that there's seven things we have unity in, that unity shouldn't be simply going to the lowest possible common denominator, but should be around things that are really clear. And again, they're listed in Ephesians 4 and verses 4, 5 and 6, and they are very simply one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So as we can see, unity is about seven characteristics, seven habits of character, and is about holding seven things as precious. The thing I love about Jesus is that he encapsulated, he just demonstrated such incredible unity 
We see at the very beginning of his ministry, the people that followed him were people that hated each other. The people that were his disciples were people who were so diametrically opposed to each other. And yet they found in him a simple unity. Jesus goes on, or Paul goes on to talk about Jesus as being not only a unifier, but as Jesus being so incredibly generous. When we think of Ephesians 4, we often think of verse 11 and we talk of the fivefold gifts. But I want you to kind of look this morning or this evening, wherever you are, at this as actually being part of a process of exploring the generosity of Jesus and giving his grace and that the gifts are part of how he builds his body. Says in verse 7, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. He makes it so clear that it's for each of us. He makes it so clear that there is a gift. And that verse mentions given, special gift, and generosity. Three times that theme is found in there, just as the theme of all is mentioned a number of times and is so inclusive. In fact, so desperate is Paul to make this point that when you read him, his rendering of Psalm 68:18, you'll notice a slight difference. In verse 8, where he quotes from Psalm 68, it says, When you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from all the people. Verse 8, it says, When he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Isn't it interesting that in Psalm, it's about him receiving the and in Ephesians, it's about Jesus giving. Paul uses the passage in Psalms to contrast the king ascending to Jerusalem and receiving gifts to Jesus ascending to heaven and giving gifts. We serve a king who loves to be generous. So who are the, what are these gifts and who are they given to? You can't mistake the inclusivity of Paul's language. But we often think of these gifts as just being special to an elite group. We know that spiritual elitism doesn't work. 2,000 years of church history and common sense tells us that. And if we think that this is about the spiritual elite, then we're actually talking about outsourcing. This is a passage that talks about some of the gifts and it's really good for us to be aware that there are different occasions where the Bible talks about the gifts. Lists are found also in Romans 12, 6 to 8, and 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. And I guess the question I want to ask is, when we talk about leadership, are we talking about gifts or are we talking about roles? And I think it's important because a gift is given without repentance. A gift is given but doesn't determine maturity or character. However, what we see in the New Testament was that a role of someone in the church was a requirement of character. And ultimately, I believe that character should trump gifting. Because when we look at the early church, and even within this, the New Testament, we see that there are really only two positions and they were elders and deacons. 
I want to come to shepherds and overseers in a moment. I want to be really clear that when we look at the Old Testament, it's really important for us to see that elders actually had a really established place there. So when people came into the New Testament, into the church, the idea of an elder was a really clear position. If you consider Exodus 3, verses 16 to 18, it says, Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt. Having elders was a natural part of tribal living, and most nations had elders. In fact, the Bible refers to the elders on a number of different nations. What is important here is how God views the elders of Israel. One, he believes the elders will have the discernment and faith to believe what Moses doesn't even believe at that time. The elders were to represent the people of Israel as Moses represented God. From the very beginning, God used elders. In fact, in Numbers 11.17, it reveals that elders were given the same spirit as Moses and that the elders will bear the burden of the people among with you, along with you, I beg your pardon. Surely having the same spirit as Moses and sharing the burden of the people is the very essence of what leadership was in that time. The elders were not just a group of older men who sat round rubber stamping what Moses wanted. They were men and sadly, they were all men. But they were people recognised for their wisdom and lifestyle, consistent with their beliefs. Unlike the New Testament that specifies what an elder should look like, the Old Testament had no need for such a list. The candidates were all from the same nation, the same background, the same belief, and they all believed the same values and principles. The elders had a number of responsibilities, including intercession, delivering justice, and addressing unsolved murders. They also dealt with a rebellious son, evidence of virginity, and hearing the case of someone seeking refuge, according to Deuteronomy 19, 21, 22, and 25. They keep appearing, attending to matters of conduct and instruction. They supported Boaz. They were consulted by Saul. They anointed David as his coronation and mourned in sackcloth when the angel reached Jerusalem after David's census. Sometimes they got it wrong, wanting a king, advising Ithithel, and taking the ark into battle. God watched over them, it says in Ezra. Throughout the Old Testament, they were held to account when Israel sinned. Isn't that interesting? They were held to account when Israel sinned. We see that in Isaiah 3.14, Jeremiah 19, Ezekiel 9.6, and Joel 2.16.17. Elders were a group in each city that sat at the gates and dealt with the needs of their community, according to Deuteronomy 21.19. So what about in the New Testament? It says in Mark 8.31, then Jesus began to tell that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Interesting to note the order. Elders, leading priests, and teachers of the religious law. Elders were right up there. As the New Testament opens, we see the role of an elder as very prominent. 
but it's kind of easy to miss because we're often more focused on some of the religious leaders. It was the elders that tried to bribe the sol- sol- sorry, tried to bribe the soldiers for the body of Jesus in Matthew 28:12, that challenged the authority of Jesus in Luke 20 verse 1, and argued to have Jesus crucified in Mark 15:1. The elders also opposed Peter and the apostles, as we see in Acts 5:21, and later supported wanting to kill Paul in Acts 23:14. They were not wicked but misguided and zealous. It appears the role of elders is as prominent here as at any time in the Old Testament. The elders did not have the responsibility of teaching. That was something that fell to the priests, scribes, although there is the possibility they participated in synagogue life, kind of in their role, the elder would have not been a teacher. In the New Testament, We no longer have need of a priesthood, and now the elders are expected to teach. So what about in the early church? We know that wherever the apostles went, they appointed elders. We see in Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In the early church, we know that the apostles provided the leadership. We see this in the church of Jerusalem. Peter, Barnabas and Paul began leading other churches throughout the entire region, while other apostles went further towards the outermost places. However, in Jerusalem, around 48 to 50, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem is listed in the time of Acts 15 and 16, as apostles and elders. And suddenly we see that shift. And we see that whole passage of apostles and elders in Acts 15, 2, 15, 4, 15, 6, 15, 22, Acts 15, 23, and 16, 4. In 18, AD 48 to 50, at the Council of Jerusalem, the most important centre in Christianity, had already transitioned from being led by apostles to an apostle and elders, looking at Acts 21.18. The early church was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. Early converts were Jewish in Jerusalem or visiting Jerusalem for Passover. There's no reason to suggest it was exclusively Jewish. However, the leaders and significant numbers of the church at the very beginning were all Jewish. Becoming a Christ follower did not make you un-Jewish. In fact, we know that early Christians continued to attend the temple and Jewish synagogues. The scriptures indicate very clearly that the church adopted the Jewish leadership style of elders, but rejected the idea of priests. Priests were no longer needed, as all Christians were seen as priests. We see that in 1 Peter 2.5. And we no longer needed a mediator, having one in Christ. As Timothy says, this meant that the church needed leadership to teach, and so we see a qualification of eldership as the ability to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.9. And we also see elders as church leaders in other centres. So, for example, in Iconium, Acts 14.23, Ephesus 20.13, Church of Jerusalem 21.18, Church of Philippi, Philippians 1.1. Churches in Crete, Titus 1.5. 
What was really interesting was that the apostles sometimes even refer to themselves as elders. And we see John doing that in 2 John 1.1 and 3 John 1.1. In fact, it's interesting to note that John, who took Mary, the mother of Jesus, and moved to Ephesus, probably moved there in sort of the early 40s AD. He was an apostle in Ephesus, and yet, it, and I would imagine having someone like John, the, the beloved apostle, who was so intimate with Jesus, having him there made him on the leadership. And yet it's interesting that Ephesus is listed always as elders, never apostles or an apostle or an apostle and elders, simply elders. It gives the indication that John and Peter himself, who refers to himself as a fellow elder in First Peter 5, were content to be elders because that was about reputation and character rather than just an appointment. Isn't it an interesting thought that some of the apostles were happy to be known as elders? I wonder how many apostles today would be happy to be known simply as elders. I think that what is really important, whatever the churches that you attend, whatever the phrase is, and we know that the term elders is used interchangeably with overseer or slash bishop or shepherd slash pastor. But when we look at those occasions in First Peter 5 and then again in Acts 20, um, around verses 27, 28, we see elders is always being used as plural and those other terms such as overseer slash bishop or shepherd slash pastor being used in terms of activities or roles that they did. But I don't want to get hang up on names because wherever we go, people have different titles. I guess the question is, do we appoint people on the basis of a gift or character? And what was it that the early church did? Did we see the church always appointing people that were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers? Or did we see them appointing elders and deacons? I think the scriptures are quite clear as about that, how that works. I trust that wherever you are, you are in leadership or have leadership that is godly and follows a biblical model. Until next week, God bless. Thank you for joining the Cultivate podcast. If we can help you with anything or you'd like some notes, please email us at crosscultivation at gmail.com. God bless.